This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Merlin Bennett, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 400 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. If you're a longtime listener, you'll know that every 100 episodes, we do a special bonus podcast celebrating the fact that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is somehow still going and exploring some behind the scenes aspect of the show. So back in episode 100, our friends Matt London interviewed John Joseph Adams and me about how we started Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And in episodes 200 and 300, we heard from some of our longtime listeners. For episode 400, I thought it might be fun to interview my parents, John R. Curtley and Catherine Barr Curtley, who are both scientists, science fiction fans, and longtime Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listeners. And this topic was inspired by Jonathan Tyndall, who interviewed me back in 2016 for the Secular Stories podcast. He sent me a note last year which reads, do you think your parents would ever be up to being interviewed? Why I ask is that they seem to have raised you in a good way. As a parent myself, I'm always looking for tricks and tips. And their academics, always a topic of fascination to me. I told him that I thought my parents were probably too shy to do an interview with him. But it occurred to me that I could probably talk them into appearing on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And so here they are. So, Mom and Dad, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So is this your first, this is your first podcast appearance? It is. Absolutely. Have you ever been interviewed for anything before? Um, I, I think I probably was interviewed for uh, an internal IBM thing, but uh, not in 20 years anyway. I was interviewed for a scholarship. For, for That was some publication? No, for an academic scholarship for school. Right, but not not a uh, magazine or a TV show or podcast or anything? Nope. So you must be pretty excited. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is definitely the high point of our week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, well, so why don't we start off with Mom and have you just tell us about how you first got interested in science fiction. So when I was in about third or fourth grade and moving to reading longer books, I was really into mystery books. And our part of town didn't have a library, but once a week, the bookmobile, which was kind of a truck with a big trailer, would come and park outside my elementary school, and there were books inside. So when I was in about fourth grade, I was just looking for something new to read, and right there at eye level were all of the science fiction books by Robert Heinlein. And I should also, I should also say that this was about the same time that the Russians launched Sputnik. And so my neighbors and I would stand outside at night trying to see if we could see Sputnik going over. So there was lots of interest in space. And so you bought one or more of those Heinlein books? Um, I didn't buy them. I checked them out of the library. And the very first one was Tunnel in the Sky, which just made an amazing impression on me. 
Yeah, it's a great one. I think that's probably my favorite of the Heinlein juveniles. It's about, uh, you know, there's a group of students and they uh, are supposed to sort of, they're sort of like Boy Scouts, sort of like space Boy Scouts. And they're supposed to spend, I don't know, a week or something on a randomly selected alien planet and survive. And then there's a uh, a supernova that knocks out the relay station and they end up being stranded permanently and have to basically uh, build their own civilization. It's a great, great story. And it has a much happier ending than Lord of the Flies. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so then how about Dad? How did you first get interested in science fiction? I, uh, the, you know, I grew up in uh, a small town in Connecticut and they had really a terrific library. So I would, uh, prowl that, uh, after school. And I don't know, somehow I, I ran across, uh, Heinlein and Asimov and Bradbury and, and those guys. And I think the, uh, the Heinlein story that certainly that, that made the most impression on me was, uh, I think it was called Starship Troopers. And they made a horrible movie out of it, but uh, you know, just the uh, the the amazingly cool uh, suits that they had—the armor and and uh, powered suits where they could decide whether to jump over a building or just uh, go right through it—and the uh, instant decisions they had to make—and I even sort of got into the uh, pretty uh, right-wing philosophy in, uh, in that uh, book. I think I've pretty much gotten over that by now. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's been a long time since I read it, but I think a pretty good portion of the book is uh, is classroom scenes where there's this um, sergeant or something uh, who, uh, and he's probably higher ranking than that, but he he trains, you know, he he sort of trains them in uh, sort of he's sort of I guess a classic uh, Heinlein uh, self insert character uh, who's sort of uh, you know philosophizing. Um, so yeah, that's interesting that those that those ideas appeal to you, though. Yeah, you know, um, one of the things he argues very strongly is that uh, you should not have citizenship unless you uh, serve. You know, either in the uh, air, uh, armed forces or, or you know, some sort of civilian something. And that uh, that sort of appealed to me. Yeah. So was I mean I I sort of since I know you uh, I, I know that neither of your parents were into science fiction really at all um how did they react to uh did they have any particular reaction to your uh, interest in science fiction no <laughs> no um um my father i i must say was not much of a reader uh and uh yeah my my mother was more into uh uh sort of condensed condensed books uh, there was this thing where you could, I think it was called Book of the Month Club. You could, uh, you could have books come in. But, uh, often I, I think they, they were not the, the full versions of it, but, uh, uh condensed version. How about, uh, your older brother, Jim? Was he into science fiction at all? <sighs> I, I don't think so. No. You know, he was more of a, you know, an, an engineer type. He was the type who, uh, memorized pi to 40 places and uh he uh read uh, the encyclopedia from the front to the back <laughs> much more disciplined than i was and how about mom did you have uh how did people in your uh, social circle feel about you reading science fiction 
Um, I don't think anybody cared. Um, and though both of my parents read voraciously, neither of them read science fiction. But my mother did take me to see 2001 A Space Odyssey when the movie came out. So I think she was pretty open to most things. And how about uh, teachers and things? I'm not sure my teachers knew that science fiction existed. I think that's probably right. You know, we got the uh, the standard uh, fare. Uh, I think, the, you know, the most far out stuff we saw was, uh, or we learned about was like uh, Lord of the Flies or, uh, well, of course, uh, uh, oh, we actually saw some uh, Bradbury uh, in, in school. Um, the uh, the one where they, they're burning the books. Yeah, Fahrenheit 451. 451, yeah. I, I think that was in uh, in one of the high school classes we took. And because, Mom, it seems like you had uh, some conflicts with English teachers. That's the impression I get. <laughs> That's true. Um, I, I think that I'm a little bit more um, receptive to what they were trying to do now that I'm older. But at the time, we read a lot of um, particularly English literature with allegories, and these were all written by um, Christian writers. And since I didn't have a good Christian background at home, it was difficult for me to interpret the allegories in these stories. And so I interpreted them from a much more humanistic point of view, and my teachers would say things like, well, that's very interesting, but the critics don't agree with you. I mean, you were raised Unitarian, so that didn't give you... Is that not, not Christian enough? <laughs> um, people disagree. Unitarians are, are very different all over the country, but I was really raised in a sort of a secular humanist church. Mm. And so, no, I would say that my biblical background is lacking. <laughs> um, and actually, how about Dad? You were raised uh, Episcopalian? Uh, I attended Episcopalian Church. It really didn't stick. Because I've heard this story about how you uh, you refused to be confirmed, like you read the Bible and wasn't wasn't for you. Yeah. So uh, those are two events that were not necessarily correlated. But but uh, yeah, you know, I was supposed to be confirmed. I was probably what twelve or something, and. Uh, it just it just didn't make any sense to me. So um, so I I refused to be confirmed, and my older sister con was convinced I was going to to go directly to hell. And and I think my father was sort of privately rooting for me. Hmm. And uh, my mother really didn't put any pressure on me. I I I was never convinced that she was actually religious. Uh, I think it was more of a social thing for her. That's interesting because she's she spent more time at church than anyone I've ever met. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, uh, you know, it was it was where she met her friends, uh, and uh, she. Uh, I, I think you know she did volunteer work there. I don't think she ever actually taught Sunday school. But um, no, I I really do think it was a social thing for her. And then what was the, the thing about reading the Bible? So that was later? Oh, yeah. I, I was in college then. And, uh, you know, I, I worked at, on the 
in the summers as a lifeguard in a uh, local local lake and uh, well so th this this uh, this pond was owned by a uh, a local millionaire and uh, i think the the lifeguarding jobs were sort of welfare for the the <laughs> the teenagers in town and so he would hire twice as many lifeguards as as were needed and then we rotated around and and so there was really a lot of time for uh, for reading and so one summer i decided i was going to read the bible and uh, i'm sure that uh, all of the uh, other kids thought i was crazy and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they may be right well, maybe part of the reason they thought you were crazy is because you jumped a robot, uh, a rowboat off the the giant rock that's a hundred feet in the air. Yeah, that's that's the rumor. That's the rumor. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So, so because uh, we we went there. This is the the Great Ponds. Uh, we went there. This is many years later, and there was a uh, we talked to a current lifeguard who's like, "You're John Curley. You're the one who jumped the the rowboat off the giant rock. It's a hundred <laughs> feet in the air." <laughs> and uh, you had to explain to him that no, that's not exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah, it turns out there are two rocks, and and uh, one is about two feet off the air, <laughs> and the other is is it's about thirty feet. And so we used to dive off of the uh, the thirty foot one when no one was around. But uh, no, the robot off of the rock was just uh, just a couple feet. <laughs> um. And so then, let's see. Let's let's get back to to mom. So, did uh, being interested in science fiction? So you went to college um, for science, right? So did um, being interested in science fiction play any role in that? I would say that the very first thing I wanted to be was a writer. And unfortunately, unlike my son, who has a great imagination. I did not have a great imagination, but because I was interested in science fiction, my interest in that and science sort of evolved about, about the same time. I became really interested in caves and spelunking until I discovered that I didn't like dark and closed places. <laughs> <laughs> and from then on, until I went to college, I just, you know, moved through all kinds of different science that I wanted to do um, until... Finally, when I went to college, at that point, I was interested in chemistry and math, and so that's kind of what stuck. Uh, and so then, let's see, so Dad, you I've always told people that you um, got into physics because you wanted to write science fiction, and um, you know, having a background in physics would be good for that. Is that, uh, is that more or less true? Yeah, that's right. I, I uh, wanted to be a writer also. I'm, I'm sure if you scratch the surface of anyone that they wanted to be a writer at, at one point. Um, and so at, um, when I went to school at, at UC Santa Barbara, I was intending to, to be a double major, you know, English and physics. And, uh, uh, when I went to enroll, the, uh, physics curriculum was just so, uh, overwhelming. You know, there's, there's no way that you could get a, uh, a bachelor's in physics without starting 
your freshman year and taking most of the classes that you were taking in, in physics. And so somehow the, I, I, in, in the end, I took a, I had a, a bachelor's of art rather than a bachelor's of science because I took so many literature courses, but, but I, I was not able to, to major in English also. Um, and it wasn't until I was probably a senior that I realized that I was really a horrible writer. <laughs> I, I didn't have a tenth of, of the talent that, that you have. Um, so um, it's a good thing I, that I stuck with physics. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, there's a lot of people who, uh, you know, are in their 50s and 60s and still haven't realized that they're terrible writers. So don't be, be too hard on yourself. And and some people have said that I'm still writing science fiction. <laughs> well, there's this other thing, Dad, where you also, didn't you want to be a, a concert pianist? Well, yeah, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. sounds like I can't decide. <laughs> so, um, yeah, when, when uh, I, I was probably 12 or 13, uh, my sister started taking uh, piano lessons. And she just didn't have the uh, interest or discipline to take it, to keep it up. And, and so I, I sort of took over the piano and uh, I did it very seriously for, uh, until I uh, graduated from high school. And uh, when I got to Santa Barbara, I actually uh, uh, cold walked into uh, the office of a, a professor in music at, at Santa Barbara. And asked if uh, if he would give me lessons, and uh, he sort of made a face, and then uh, he had me play something, and then he said, "Okay, I'll do it." And so I, I took uh, lessons from him him for a year, but uh, never never formally took. Uh, you know, it was it was like a tutorial course with with, with this guy. Uh, never never took more more music. Uh, I might say that the, my uh, instructor, when I was in high school, he was a young guy, and uh, uh, one time he asked me, you know, what, what I was interested in studying in, in school, and I said, well, you know, maybe, maybe I'll study music. And he says, uh, don't study music unless you have to, you know, because, you know, it's it's just... The arts in general are just, just a, a really uh, difficult way to make a living. Um, and I think I'm glad <laughs> that I took his advice on that. Well, yeah. I mean, the way that you've – you said that he said if you can be happy doing anything else, do the something else. You know, that only yep. do arts if you can only be happy doing this. Yeah. And, and, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And so then uh, you guys met in a quantum mechanics class. So, Mom, why don't you tell us about that? Um, that is true. Um, I was a second-year graduate student in chemistry. Dad was a first-year graduate student in physics. And he sat behind me in um, the introductory to quantum mechanics that all physics majors take as a first-year graduate student. And after class, I asked him what he had done that summer. And he said, I hiked the John Muir Trail, and I said, I've done that, and that was almost 50 years ago. 
Well, co- there's more to that story, though. Um, you're talking about her first date? Yeah, yeah. About the, the <laughs> slides? Okay. <laughs> you sure you want this on the air? Okay, so... So Dad invited me to come over and see his slides of the John Muir Trail. And I, of course, invited several of my uh, fellow chemistry students, uh, friends. Who are all men. All men. And when we got to Dad's apartment, his roommate opened the door and said that Dad wasn't there because he had gone off to fight a forest fire. In the Los Padres National Forest. And I, being an idiot, didn't realize that I was signing up until the fire, uh, forest fire was over. <laughs> and so, so um, uh, towards the end of the, the first day, I was unloading helicopters with shovels and, you know, rakes and, and stuff like that. And uh, I went to the supervisor and I said, I had a very important uh, appointment. Uh, I, I had to leave, and uh, turned out that uh, uh, I think that day uh, one of the the real forest fighters had had gotten killed, and so uh, the the supervisor was not in a very um, flexible flexible mood, and so uh, he says you can leave, but uh, I'm not going to provide you with any transportation. So. Uh, I claim it was about a 10-mile uh, walk uh, down these forest roads to, to get to, uh, to civilization. And so I, um, I ran down the, down the mountain, and uh, there were, of course, no cell phones at that point. And I, uh, I found a, uh, a payphone, and I called up my roommate, said uh, that he should tell Kathy that I'm not going to be there. And I think he came and picked me up. I, I don't quite remember what happened. But then uh, uh, I got back. I was not, it was probably only a, an hour or two late. And then I went and uh, went and apologized to, to, to Kathy, and she forgave me, and here we are. <laughs> so you so you never... You weren't there when the, when she showed up with all her friends for for what you thought no. was a date. No, no. <laughs> oh, but the the next week we we made a new date, and then all the friends showed up then. <laughs> yeah. So um, then another uh, sort of story from your graduate school years that sticks out in my mind is when you went to see Soylent Green and Silent Running. So, Mom, why don't you tell us about that? So about a mile from where um, we were living was a drive-in movie theater, you know, where you take the car and you put the speaker over the um, window. And this was a science fiction um, spectacular with four movies, including Soylent Green, Silent Running. Ooh, the other two are escaping me right now. And... Into about the third or fourth movie, we looked at each other and said, this is just too depressing. <laughs> we, we can't take this. 
so we came home and we, we talked about what a dismal uh, portrayal of a future world this was. And so we decided that it was time to start making charitable donations, even though we were poor graduate students. And so we decided to donate to uh, the Sierra Club to protect the earth and Planned Parenthood to um, keep population in check. And then for good measure, uh, we donated to the uh, SBCA to take care of animals. Do you think that other people who saw those movies had a similar reaction? I don't know. You know, the big thing about Soylent Green is that in the end you discover that they've been eating people. And I found that much less disturbing than just the portrayal of what the world would look like with too many people and pollution and the scenes in there in which people are willing to kill for strawberry jam. And I just realized, you know, um, what a beautiful planet we live on. And, of course, in the movie, um, when the man dies, he dies to Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. And I've never been able to listen to that symphony again without thinking about that scene. Because he's watching a movie of, of a stream, the kind that, as a child, I spent a lot of time fishing in with my father. And the, the young man asks the older guy, did the earth used to look like that? And he says, yes. And I just found that just so heartbreaking that, you know, I might live into a time in which that kind of earth did not exist. Weren't you teaching some sort of environmental science class or something? <laughs> I was. Um, I spent two years teaching environmental studies while I was in graduate school. Um, once as a um, teaching assistant at UCSB in the new environmental studies department. And then I also taught high school for um, a year, and we had a whole year program in environmental studies. And I think that my life became much cheerier after I wasn't doing that. Hmm. Well, so, yeah, so then you uh, both, I mean, there were, it's a little more complicated, but basically you, you both ended up living in Westchester, uh, just north of New York City, which is where I grew up. And you were both working uh, at the Thomas J. Watson lab, uh, IBM lab. And so um, it seems like a lot of the people that you were friends with, like I'm thinking particularly of Ruben and Nancy, were science fiction fans. Um, did you feel like there were a lot of science fiction fans at the lab? I think it's hard to be a scientist and not be a science fiction fan. I, I think you'll find that most of our colleagues, you know, are at least familiar with the basics, you know, Heinlein, Asimov, Bradbury, Clark. So, yeah, like uh, Tom Tice, mm -hmm. he was really a, uh, into science fiction. Um, I don't know, but... But yet we never talked about it. No. Not... Sometimes we traded books. Yeah. So what kind of books would you be trading? Well, yeah, the, the classics. Um, well, you know, when Ender's Game came out, yeah. th that was yeah. um, just a complete change for our generation, that we had never read anything like Ender's Game. And so, you know, that book got passed around a lot, including the sequels. I can remember really vividly um, Nancy talking about Neuromancer. 
and just talking about this uh, this character who had died, but they had recorded his uh, brain waves uh, in digital form, and now he only existed uh, in you know on the internet, basically in digital form. Mm-hmm. And just what a mind blowing idea that was back then when uh, you know this is real really. I don't know. I guess there were personal computers that at that point, but they were pretty new. But you you guys had grown up with uh, you know punch cards and mainframes and. Uh, you know, the, the computer technology was really changing very quickly. Well, you have to remember for us, we grew up with pencil and paper, and the first big technological advance we had was to learn how to use a slide rule in high school. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, of course, at, at the Watson Lab, that was a very forward-thinking place. And so we were sort of immersed in, in uh, voice recognition and uh, chess-playing computers and uh, superconducting computers and, and, you know, stuff like that. It was, uh, uh, in some sense, uh, we were where they were turning science fiction into to actual hardware. I'm reminded of this thing, too, where when mom, when you drove from California to New York, didn't mom have her uh, her thesis or something in the form of computer punch cards in a suitcase or something? Yeah. yeah, it was a. Then um, they have a standard box that the, the punch cards uh, go in, and so uh, yeah, the, the program that she wrote was was in that box, and that was in our garage for for decades. When I uh, I, I was a postdoc at uh, Penn, and when I when we moved from Penn to IBM, I took a, a box of uh, punch cards. And uh, read them into a card reader at uh, at the Watson Lab, and that's the last that I ever used punch punch cards. You know, they were right on the cusp of of going to uh, uh, monitors. I mean, it just sounds like an absolute nightmare. I mean, if the cards get if you lose one, or they get out of order, or you drop them, or something, and if you uh, mistype a character. Then your your program will fail, and uh, you won't learn about it for from a half hour to four hours later. And then you have to do it again. It's, a, it's just a much different experience. So it was pretty exciting when we arrived at IBM, and they had these things called terminals, and that you could actually type on them instead of doing punched cards, and. There weren't enough to go around, so they had them in special rooms. So you had to leave your office and go down to the special room. And there was a program on it called Adventure that you play during your off hours. So when you were a baby, um, we went to the lab on a Saturday and left you sleeping in your car seat in Dad's office. And then we went down the hallway, and the two of us were busy playing Adventure, you know, looking for the treasure, mapping out all the the mazes. And all of a sudden, this guy appears at the door, and he's got you in your car seat, and you're crying. And he says, does this belong to you? (laughs) And we said, nope, nope, that's not ours. Uh -uh." (laughs) Well, you jumped ahead a little bit because uh, I wanted to mention how you were pregnant with me when you went to see Star Wars on opening night. Well, it clearly had a big influence on you, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. So what was what was that like seeing Star Wars opening night? 
That was absolutely amazing. And it was just by chance. Uh, we were living in Philadelphia then, and we had gone downtown. And I did know that the movie was coming out because it had been written up in Time magazine. And across the street in front of the movie theater was this long line. And so we crossed the street, and we were just walking along the line. And someone that we knew from the Penn Physics Department said, we're going to see Star Wars. Do you want in line? <laughs> he said, of course. And so it was just chance that we went, you know, the day that it opened. And it was absolutely mesmerizing. I mean, it was like nothing else that uh, we had ever seen. Yeah, I mean, I remember one of your colleagues saying that, you know, back then you would just go to see anything that was science fiction. And they were all, you know, pretty much terrible. And that just from the first shot of the Star Destroyer flying over the camera, you just, you're just like, this is something completely different than anything I've ever seen before. Yeah. Well, just the opening scene when they have, um, the words that are going out into space. Yeah. That was completely different. And, and some of it uh, has not aged that well, you know, like, like when the, uh, uh, the, Stormtroopers, stormtroopers, yeah. they were called. Stormtroopers are, are assaulting uh, Princess Leia's uh, spaceship, and and they're they're shooting the uh, the laser beams out and or whatever those things are. Yeah, blasters. It, uh, it was. Uh, if you look at it now, it's it's a little bit hokey. You know, the, the guys falling down. I don't know, but uh, at that at that point, it. Uh, it was really very different and striking. Yeah, well, and that definitely had a big impact on me because because uh, Grandma, uh, Dad's mom, had a VCR, and that was really uh, you know high tech stuff back then. And this is when I was a little kid, and and she had taped uh, the original Star Wars off the TV, and so she had it on VHS. And so every time we went over to her house, I would just go down into the basement and watch Star Wars. So I watched it just over and over and over again. Yeah, we would go on uh, hiking trips, and uh, you could repeat the dialogue from Star Wars from the start to the end, word for word. <laughs> yep. So, shall we talk about your other prenatal influence? Sure. So, the other thing that you did before you were born is that you went to a lecture by Isaac Asimov. Oh, I, for I forgot about that. So, yeah, so what... Uh, so what Give me more details about that. This was at Penn. Yeah. So um, Isaac was speaking at Penn, and I'll have to say that since that was more than 40 years ago, I really don't remember anything that he said, except that it was just amazingly exciting, you know, to be there, because I had been reading his books since I was in, in fifth grade. And the biggest surprise I had is that he did not look like the meek little man on the back of the books when I was a child, but he was enormous with with hair and sideburns and spoke in a big booming voice and it was just actually really exciting to be there. Was he the only uh, science fiction author that you ever saw? That's probably right. Yeah. I mean, he would have been on TV, I guess, back then. If you ever even ever actually even saw him on TV, I don't remember doing so. No, you know that there was a lot of emphasis when we were kids on uh, 
uh, trying to popularize science, you know, because they were trying to uh, catch up with the Russians after, after Sputnik. So there was there was this thing. Uh, Watch Mr. Wizard, I think it was called, um, you know, where the, um, he pretended to be a scientist. He had a white coat hmm. and, uh, he, uh, explained stuff like nuclear fission with, uh, mousetraps and ping pong balls. But that's all BS, right? You never wore a, a white coat? Uh, only when I went to the machine shop. <laughs> I wore a white coat in the chemistry lab, and after a year, that coat had holes in it. Because you were never a very good experimentalist. No, I was always dropping dangerous liquids on my coat. <laughs> well, when you were saying that you wanted to be a spelunker, but then you realized that you uh, don't like dark and closed spaces, it was also occurring to me that you also have poor eyesight and balance. So... Uh, I, th I think spelunking was really not in the cards. No, maybe this explains why I became a theoretician. <laughs> um, all right, so say a bit more about what it was like being the parents of an eccentric genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were certainly unique. Um, your idea of a good time was, was to uh, have us let you uh, go home after school rather than going to a uh, a daycare type type situation and then just uh i think at that point maybe we had a uh, did we have a pc at that point and uh so you were teaching yourself to program and uh writing stories of course i think even before that i mean the thing that mom says i don't really remember this but she says that um, if, if she took me to the playground that all the other kids would be running around screaming and stuff and I would just sit there with a stick drawing in the dirt for hour after hour after hour yes and um, also when you were about two and I said um, would you like me to show you how to tie your shoes you said nope I'll figure it out myself and then dad said well I guess he knows how you tie your shoes <laughs> <laughs> but you were always very independent uh, and always had interesting ideas. And I would say that one of the best things about being a parent long term is all the things that you've been interested in that you've introduced us to, even though you personally may not be that interested in them anymore. So, so for example, um, this is moving ahead, but you were very interested in constitutional law. And Dad and I continue to be interested in constitutional law, but that's not a big focus for you anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's moving way ahead. Uh, okay. I wasn't, int so I wasn't interested in constitutional here. law when I was a little kid. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, well, because, you know, because I said Jonathan Tyndale was, was asking for parenting advice, and I was just thinking back on some of this stuff, and, uh, you know, I would not want to try to, raise me like that must have been a, a nightmare in a lot of ways because I, I just can't imagine like trying to get me to do something I don't want to do like, well, we just have... didn't <laughs> <laughs> um, 
See, yeah. did we ever get him to do something he didn't want to do? Well, th there is the story about the patch in Grand Canyon. Oh, yes. Okay. So this story is, is that we were getting ready to walk into Grand Canyon and spend about six days down in the canyon. And just before we started hiking or backpacking, you were in the gift shop and you found this really cool patch, you know, one of the ones that you can sew on sweatshirts and stuff up the Grand Canyon, and you asked if you could have it. And in a momentary flash of genius that I don't often have, I said, you walk into the canyon and out again without complaining, and I'll buy you that patch when we come back. And you did. You did a great job. And we bought the patch, and then we went on to buy you patches in New Zealand and in Yosemite and other places. Uh, where you also did a good job. So I would say that it was possible to motivate you. Mostly carrot <laughs> rather, rather than stick. Well, because I remember you saying that you would, um, you know, send me to my room as punishment, and then I would just stay in there and not come out because I was perfectly happy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's right. And, and that drove me crazy. Yeah, well, we, we tell the story about the time that, the, uh, gosh, you were probably four or something. And uh, you were in your room. It was two in the morning. You were playing your record player. You had this little, little tiny record player. And uh, we had to, to beg you to stop because it was keeping us away. I can also remember, you know, you would think, um, you know, given the writing and everything and book reviewing and everything that I do, that I, I learned to read really young, but that's not true. Cause I can remember I, uh, I just refused to let anyone teach me how to read. And, uh, I think I was like, even maybe in kindergarten before I started reading, if I remember right. That's true. Um, but you were read to a great deal. Well, Can right. You remember that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, I was going to mention that. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, like every night, um, you know, I would just uh, get in bed and you guys would read me. So I actually made a list here of the books that I remember most vividly. <sighs> wow. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So, so every night, you know, you would read a chapter or something and then I would beg you to keep reading and you would read maybe another chapter and then beg, beg me to go to bed <laughs> and it would be sort of a, a nightly negotiation. But, um, mm -hmm. yeah, the ones I remember most vividly are uh, Heinlein's Red Planet. William Sweeter's Interstellar Pig, The Hobbit, uh, Wrinkle in Time, Last Unicorn, and The Illustrated Man. Hmm. That's do you, do you remember? That's got to be later, though, right? The Illustrated Man. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember. Do you remember? My mom probably remembers better than I do. Well, actually, I was reaching back further to books like Make Way for Ducklings. And um, the little engine that could... Well, I'm trying to keep this science fiction relevant. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I think one of the biggest influences on you, even more than some of the early science fiction books, were the influence of um, The Princess Bride and The Last Unicorn. The movies. That, the, the movies, right. That um, you watched those sort of at age four to five. And I just think they were, you know, tremendously influential to the point where your grandmother on my side of the family and I both read Peter Beagle's The Last Unicorn to you, you know, when you were only five or six years old. 
I mean, didn't we? I thought we read the last unicorn on a backpacking trip. We did, we did, um, out of Kennedy Meadows in the Sierra. Yeah, and I can remember too. You know, um, that was around the time. Around the time that I saw Last Unicorn was this period of time where every time we came home from a movie, I would make a little book, uh, you know, recounting what happened in the movie, a little picture book. And I know I did that with Last Unicorn. I do. I, I did that with E.T. Uh, I don't know if there were how many other ones there were actually, but I was pretty proud of the Last Unicorn one. I think that's pretty good. I think we still have it. Except I got a little confused because there's a part in the movie where. Uh, the witch creates a match, like a, a illusion horn. So the unicorn has two horns. And I got uh, confused. I was like, wait, was it two horns or three horns? So in my picture book, there, there's three <laughs> horns on the cover. <laughs> so I was a little miffed when I, I realized that error. But oh, I was going to mention, though, that mom would, um, you know, since I didn't know how to read, I would do these these picture books and then I would make mom write. You know, I, I would sort of tell her what I want wanted the text to say and you were a good sport about doing that. I like to think I've been a uh, good promoter of your career. Yeah, well, that's for sure. I mean, I actually, as I was going through all this stuff, I uh, uh, actually have a whole thing. Well, because, um, well, oh, actually, actually, before we get to that, I did want to mention what 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 was it like for you when the um, school told told you that I had to stop selling. Um, like toys I was making to the other kids. <laughs> I'm afraid that we weren't always your best advocates. Um, but I thought that the school was um, overly... Um, they weren't particularly supportive, I don't yeah, think. Yeah, the school was not supportive of, of you and your efforts. Just think, you might have been an entrepreneur instead of a podcast host. Yeah, that would that would be awful. But well, <laughs> I wouldn't even know what to spend all my money on. Um, but no, so just to explain a little bit, yeah. So this is around the time when um, Transformers was really popular, and so I'd make my own Transformers out of you know just paper and uh, scotch tape and pen and stuff. And and they actually did transform. I'm pretty proud of that. Um, but then, yeah, the school and I was selling to my, selling them to other kids. But then it came out that kids were uh, skipping lunch and then spending their lunch money on on my transformers. And that's why the school school shut me down. They said I had to stop selling stuff at school. Hmm. So, do you think you were a challenge to raise? Well, I mean, certainly in the sense that it was hard to get me to do anything I didn't want to do. But I didn't really get into trouble. I mean, I never got arrested or anything. So, uh, you know, it kind of, kind of balances out, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Do you, do you have any other advice? If you, if, if this, uh, behavior sounds familiar to anyone, any parents listening to this, do you have any advice for them? No, but I, I have noticed that you and I have very different memories of your childhood. I used to worry about being a helicopter parent and giving you too much uh, guidance, because certainly children of your generation had much more circumscribed lives than what I, how I was raised, you know, 30 years earlier. And yet you remember your childhood, especially from about fourth grade on, as no parental supervision and raising yourself. 
Yeah, well, because I was a latchkey kid. I mean, you and dad didn't get home until about six, I think, every night. I could ride my bike anywhere I wanted. I mean, um, yeah, you think, and there's no, you know, there were no cell phones. I mean, thinking now, it's hard for me to imagine giving a kid as much freedom to just roam as, as I had. Um, so yeah, I mean, from my perspective, uh, I, I was pretty independent. So in, uh, in Cat's Cradle, um, uh, see, I don't remember the name of the scientist, but, but, uh, he, uh, was a, a very independent uh, type. And, uh, uh, actually he worked in a place very much like the, the Watson Research Center. I, I think it was modeled on, uh, General Electric's yeah. re- research center. And, uh, they had, uh, one of the the characters uh, asked his supervisor uh, how he uh, managed this 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 scientist type, the, the guy who invented uh, Ice Nine, and and he said, "Well, you know, you you can't really supervise him, but uh, uh, he was interested in turtles for a while, and we just uh, took away uh, all of all of the turtle stuff." And, uh, and, uh, then, then, then he, uh, started working on stuff which was uh, more, more aligned with, uh, the interests of the company. And, uh, uh, I think that, uh, raising you was, was a little bit like that. You know, that we, we had really, uh, it seemed like very little control. Uh, but, uh, in the end, uh, you, Ended up uh, with, uh, I think, very similar values uh, that that we have. Yeah, I mean, I definitely absorbed a lot. I mean, from from the two of you. I mean, you know, science fiction and science and all that kind of stuff, uh, especially uh, you know the outdoors, uh, all, all that kind of stuff. So, so just just have an uh, an environment which is. I don't know. Positive is maybe more important than, uh, than trying to tell you what to do. Yeah. But so yeah. So I was going to mention that you know. So when I was about fourteen, is how I remember it. I uh, decided to start submitting um, short stories to magazines, and so I sent one to Dragon Magazine and got a rejection. And I, I, I must have sent some to other magazines, I, particularly, I, I know I sent some to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and, and, and all got rejections and um, sort of lost lost enthusiasm at that point after getting, I don't know, seven or eight rejections is how I remember it. And then mom kind of um, stepped in at that point. So why don't you, what, what do you remember, mom, about that? So I really didn't know anything about submitting to magazines at this point, but I thought that the rejection that came from Dragon uh, Magazine was actually really encouraging, even though it was a rejection. You know, it had one of those lines at the bottom that said something like, um, uh, send us another, or nice try, or something like yeah, that. It said, I'll tell you, it said, not bad, send another. <laughs> and I was, uh, I was, you know, outraged that they would reject my story, but, uh, so I didn't really appreciate what a great rejection that actually was at the time. So this was also kind of at the beginning of the internet. And so by 
doing some searching online and finding some books in the library, um, I was able to start reading, you know, about how submitting really works and where you go looking for um, magazines to submit to. And in those days, there were these big, thick books um, about marketplaces for poetry and for fiction and all of that. And I would go through them line by line looking for all these magazines. And along the way, I decided that since you were only 14, maybe you would have much better luck sending your stuff to markets that are for, you know, children and teenagers. And so one of the very first positive things that you had was you submitted your story, uh, special effects to a online company, uh, Mountain Lake Software, and you won. Yeah. And so, you know, so if, if mom hadn't been doing that, that, you know, that, that never would have, a lot of that stuff never would have happened. I mean, you know, uh, I wouldn't have won any of those, any of those contests because I wouldn't have even known about them. I mean, I don't think I would have even known about, um, Asimov's magazine and analog because I think the only reason I knew about those is because you told me you had seen them. Um, mom was volunteering at the local library. And they had copies of them there. I think that's the only reason I, I even knew that those magazines existed. Um, and then, you know, mom sort of encouraged me to, to go to all these different science fiction writing workshops. There's no way I ever would have. I think I was kind of interested in Clarion because James Morrow was going to be there in 99. But there's no way I ever would have like gotten around to actually applying or anything um, if mom hadn't uh, encouraged me. Um, I also think that um, the stories you submitted to Merlin's pen um, were both great stories, and that gave you kind of a wider reach in that other people your age were reading your stories. And it's, in my mind, it's really too bad that Merlin's pen doesn't survive to this day as an outlet for young people to publish. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the highlights of my life is I was uh, hanging out with a, a young woman who this is years ago, but who uh, who works in publishing, and um, I mentioned that I had published stuff in Merlin's Pen, and she said, "Oh, I used to read Merlin's Pen." She's like, you know, uh, the best story I ever read in Merlin's Pen was this one, and she described it, and she says, uh, "Did you ever read that?" And I said, "Oh, actually, I wrote that." <laughs> huh. Well, and, you know, I think it's really great that um, people remember your story, The uh, Trials of Thomas Jefferson, that was in Cicada. Yeah, actually, uh, I mean, I told you, but I uh, I just had a, um, a email recently from a teacher who has been, was it Lest We Forget, I think? Yeah, my, my short story, Lest We Forget, she, she said that she has been teaching it for 20 years or something, and um, her copy of it got destroyed in a flood, and could I send her another copy? I had no idea people were still, uh, you know, still reading those things. Well, one of the really great things, in my opinion, about your science fiction stories is you don't attempt to explain the science, but you don't pretend that it's magic either. You just assume that it exists. And so it makes your stories more uh, ageless, that they, they don't become really dated like, you know, some of Asimov's stories, when they, when you read now about them using, for example, slide rules, you know, you know that that was a story written in the fifties. Uh, I'm reminded of a story. It might have been an Asimov story, where they put uh, 
people into the guided missiles so that they can do the calculations. Yeah. Uh, I remember that story very vividly. I'm trying to remember the, I'm sort of blanking on the title. Um, But yeah, actually, um, I had one um, teacher who was a big science fiction fan, my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Lazaro. And he read that story to us in class. That was my favorite year of school ever. (laughs) (laughs) It's all downhill from there. Yeah. Um, But yes, but it's, it's, you know, it's, and so, yeah, so I just sort of grew up in this environment where I just thought of science fiction as being so cool and, you know, that so many smart, accomplished people were into it. And, um, you know, and it was just sort of like a cool thing to do. And um, so it was a bit of a kind of a shock to sort of realize how many people out there in the world didn't view it that way. And, um, you know, particularly, you know, I have so many friends who uh, who are science fiction writers who you know, their parents basically like threatened to disown them if they wrote science fiction, uh, you know, if they pursued that as a career. Uh, so I definitely feel lucky that I, uh, I never had to deal with any of that stuff. Would it have, have had any influence whatsoever? Probably would have made said... me more determined to do it. Yes, <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then also, I mean, it was really helpful, you know, when, um, when John Joseph Adams and I started talking about doing a podcast, um, you know, mom, mom was the one who said, oh, you know, you could, uh, do it over Skype and record the Skype calls and you could interview people. Um, so I don't know if we ever would have, if mom hadn't said that, I don't know if it ever really would have, we would have gotten far enough in our thought process to, uh, yeah, to figure all that stuff out. So, uh, it's definitely a good thing mom was there with her, uh, yeah, computer knowledge at that critical juncture. And here we are, 400 episodes later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, 10 years. 10 years, 400 episodes. Wow. Um, but yeah, so I mentioned, Mom, you were working at the library or volunteering at the local library. And I mean, that's that's cool. And then also, it seems like you were really into like YA books before YA was a thing. You were kind of like ahead of the curve on that. That's right. I really liked YA books um, as kind of a uh, young mother because, for the most part, the protagonists... Well, first of all, they're both male and female. But second, most of them kind of have an upbeat message, and in most of them, the protagonist solves their own problem. And I just really like that. That... um I thought those were really good messages for young people. We should also maybe mention that you don't like violence or, you know, anything too uh, scary or intense in in your uh, books and movies. So, uh, so the YA stuff, at least as it existed then, was better for that. Why don't you t- tell them about the um, the Wizard of Oz thing? You'll have to tell me which story. About how, how you won't watch any movie that's scarier than The Wizard of Oz? Oh, my God. When I was a child, I thought The Wizard of Oz movie was the scariest movie I had ever seen. Um, the scene with the flying monkeys. Flying monkeys, yeah. And and then the um, just the drama before the wizard is exposed behind the, the curtain, just, you know, hanging on and waiting to see what was really behind that. And so... If someone wants me to watch a movie, I will say, 
is it as scary as The Wizard of Oz or scarier? And if they say yes, then I won't watch it. <laughs> and so in our family, we have a joke. We, we say, is this a Kathy movie? Meaning whether I can watch it. And so in my life, I have watched the movies that were definitely not Kathy movies, starting with The Godfather. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, so I said you were really into why you were kind of like into YA before YA was cool. And it seems like you were also into books on tape before books on tape or before audiobooks were cool. I mean, I don't remember anyone else listening to audiobooks besides us hmm. growing up. But you had all hmm. these things from like, what was it like hearing? It's like seeing eye or seeing ear theater or something like that. Yeah, and we also had some from music for little people, and and we had these wooden box sets of The Hobbit, and then Lord of the Rings. And you haven't mentioned how many miles we've done in the car together with either the book playing on the um, cassette, or I was actually reading in the car. I think we did um, How to Eat Fried Worms in Idaho. And, of course, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Of course. Of course. You mean Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yes. Yeah, well, I was get, I was going to about to mention that. So, yes, yeah, so talk about uh, discovering Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for the first time. Wow. Okay, I think we discovered it the first time when we were still in graduate school and it was on the radio. Right. There was a, a BBC production. There was a BBC production. It. Yes. That was on the radio. So we heard it on the radio long before we actually owned the uh, cassette tapes of it. So was that on what station was that on? It was on an NPR station. And so did you, did they play, did they play the whole thing or did they play it on a schedule? Like how did you? They, pl they played it on a schedule. It was like a serial. So, um, you know, um, the Lone Ranger. Uh, the Green Phantom. The Green Phantom, yeah. It was like that. Uh, I think it came out every week. Every week, yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we had to, of course, uh, schedule ourselves so that we would be around when, when it was playing. But, uh, of course, even then we didn't have a TV. <laughs> So, <laughs> actually, we haven't mentioned that this far in the uh, interview. Uh, yeah, so I wonder if that's an important uh, aspect of, of raising a science fiction author is not to have a TV. But I felt like we had a TV. I mean, you got the TV for the Olympics. I don't know what year that was. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Because I watched and a lot. Dave, of <laughs> I watched it all. Dave, on TV. Dave watched it. I guess he did. And, yeah. and we didn't. Yeah. I can remember, you know, um, because I, I really liked watching the Saturday morning cartoons, uh, but they didn't start until 6 a.m. or something. And <laughs> probably actually like later than that. But, I, you know, whatever time they um, they started, I would get up. You know, in most days you had to drag me out of bed. But on Saturdays, I would get up at like three in the morning and go down <laughs> to the uh, basement where the TV was and turn on the TVs waiting for the Saturday morning cartoons to come on. And back then there was nothing on. At that time, it was just a test pattern, just these, you know, colored bars. <laughs> and I would literally, I would sit there for hours watching the test, test pattern, waiting for the <laughs> cartoons to come on. So yeah, I, I, I can't claim that, um, lack of television was, uh, was really a formative factor in my, in my upbringing. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but so wait, so what year was that that you you were in grad school when Hitchhiker uh, when Hitchhiker's Guide came out? I think so. So then it would have how it must have been then along like ten years or something. Or how how soon were you able to acquire the audio cassettes? It was probably at least ten years after. But it made such an impression on us, you know, that as soon as we saw it in cassette tape, you know, we, we got the whole series so that we could listen to it again. Yeah. And so, yeah, so mom mentions, you know, we, we do, we would listen to that on car trips. So yeah, I, I estimate I, I must have listened to that what a dozen times at least the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. What do you think? Does that sound right? Steph, my girlfriend Stephanie always says I exaggerate how many times I've read things, but. <laughs> well, I agree with Stephanie, but I'm keeping my mouth shut. <laughs> you don't think, how many times do you think we listened to Hitchhiker's Guide in the car? Four. Only four? No, come on. All right. <laughs> it was at least eight. I'll meet you halfway. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it obviously made a big impression on me uh, in terms of naming the podcast, along with John, you know, John Joseph Adams, also a big fan of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, so... Um, all right, so Dad, do you want to tell us about the hilarious time that you almost won the Nobel Prize in physics? Uh, where to begin? Um, so uh, I was had been working at uh, the Watson Labs for oh, probably twenty years. And uh, was sort of looking around for something new to do. And uh, I went to, uh, at, at Yorktown Heights, uh, it's a this big old long building. And it's just filled with uh, very smart people. And so... And fun toys. And fun toys. Uh, we were very well supported in, in those days. Yeah, actually, let's describe the building because it's pretty striking. It's this sort of half circle... And the entire front of it is glass, and it's two floors or three floors. It's three floors. Uh, it had thirty, thirty-two aisles, forty aisles altogether. <laughs> I, I, I think um, when I started there, I was on the thirty-second uh, row, and they added eight rows at that end. Uh, and, and in fact. Uh, for a while there, I could open up the closet door in my office and uh, and look out. I, I, they, they had taken off the stone facing on the end of the building, and, and uh, I had a a view of the outside through through my closet. But but, but anyway, um, it was uh, really a great place to work because you could you know just sort of walk down the the aisles or, or walk down the rows and. To run into just just very smart people, and so uh, Mark Ketchen was uh, one of those very smart people, and uh, I asked him about doing a particular measurement, and he sort of uh, scrunched up his face and and uh, did some mental calculations, and he said, "We don't have the sensitivity unless you can scan the uh, the sample relative to the sensor, so you can compare." when the sensor is next to the sample and when it's not next to the sample. And so uh, I said to him, I'd had some experience building uh, scanning microscopes, and so I said, I, well, I, I know how to do that. 
and he knew how to make the sensors. It's called a uh, scanning, uh, superconducting quantum interference device, and it's a a means of uh, measuring very small magnetic fields. And so we sort of combined our two uh, fields of expertise and and built a a scanning squid microscope. And that's it's one of the very few uh, that had been built to that point. And then uh, there was a, a a big controversy about how superconductors uh, can work at very high temperatures. Uh, just a few years before that, this was 95, a few years before that, some uh, workers at IBM Ruchlikon had discovered that uh, uh, certain ceramics can turn superconducting at uh, relatively high temperatures uh, above the boiling point of uh, liquid nitrogen. And one of the so questions, Chad, I'm gonna I'm gonna speed this up a little bit. Yeah. So uh, so you ended up doing this experiment where you take, as I understand it, you take three. They're called crystalline substrates, but basically three materials made out of crystal, uh, sort of stuck together in triangles, and you run an electric current through that, and it creates a, a vortex, and the vortex is it's called a half integer flux quantum, something like that. So it's yeah. it's half the size of a quantum, which was what people thought was kind of the smallest bundle of energy that energy configured itself into prior to that. Is that more or less right? Well, uh, you don't have to run current through them. So uh, th these uh, these vortices just spontaneously uh, generate. And uh, in fact, the half-flux quantum is half of the smallest unit of magnetic field uh, that you can get in a superconductor. Except for that, you are completely right. And so you won the Buckley Prize for that? So uh, I and two colleagues won the Buckley Prize for that. And then uh, I, th I think the way I remember it is about, what did you say, a third of people who win the Buckley Prize go on to win the Nobel Prize in physics for the same experiment? Yes. And um, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. We should say this was like 20 years ago or something. 25 years 25 ago now. Years ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, but I can remember there being some, um, you know, one, like one of your collaborators, I, I remember was sort of a little bit more, um, what's the word? Just sort of, uh, hopeful, hopeful, in, hopeful. interested in, 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 in this happening. And, um, I don't know, were you saying that, cause, cause I know that IBM was, uh, sort of getting out of, basic research around this time? And do you think that that played a, a role in whether this experiment got attention or not? I don't think so. Um, I, I, you know, if you think about things that have won the, the Nobel Prize recently, they have things, they've been things that have really helped to make people's life better. Well, at least half of them have, have really made people's lives better, you know, lasers and, and uh, various medical applications. Uh, 
and the the half integer flux quantum effect although it's it's amazingly cool is not going to make people's life better uh, so i think it's fair it's fair that we're not going to win the nobel prize for it well uh i i've consulted with the the geek's guide to the galaxy board and i'm pleased to tell you that We've agreed to give you the first Geek's Guide to the Galaxy prize in physics. <laughs> so, right. It's actually way better than the Nobel Prize in physics. It's not as much money, but you don't have to travel to Sweden to receive it. Yeah. So kind of balances out. Well, well like we say, that and $4.50 <laughs> will buy you a, a latte in, at Starbucks. Yeah. Well, so um, so so... The, the the data output of this um, experiment was uh, it, it sort of looks like um, kind of a blue cone in the middle and then three blue rings in a triangle shape around it. And so, so you, you sent it to, was it uh, Grandma Mitchell that you sent one to? Yes, yes. Um, and I was uh, sure she wouldn't understand what it was, but uh, I thought it was a really cool picture. And so uh, my cousin Mike, uh, hung it up in her uh, room. She was in a old folks' home at that point, and he hung it up sideways so that it looks for all the world like uh, Pinocchio yeah, yeah. with a long nose and a kind of shocked expression on his face. <laughs> and so uh, we should uh, put this on the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy page so people can see what it looks like. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'll have a link to it or something. Um, yeah, and so then, um, how much science fiction do you guys read these days? I feel like, my, Mom, you, it feels like you don't read a lot of science fiction these days. No, um, just getting through my daily podcast allotment is, uh, keeps me pretty busy. Yeah, well, you actually listen to, how much Geek's Guide to the Galaxy would you listen, do you listen to, be honest? Um, I listen to every episode through 200. Um, I haven't. That done was 200 well. episodes ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, you put one out every week. Um, I would say that I almost always listen to the interviews. I'm not as big a fan of the panels. Right, well, because you haven't watched most of the shows that we talked about. That's right, because, I, because I'm not familiar with, with the movies or the series that, that you're talking about. Um, I did recently read some YA science fiction, though. Your cousin Amanda recommended um, The Scythe and the two follow-up books, and I read all three of those, and I really enjoyed those. This is The, the Scythe, like a, like a Grim Reaper Scythe? Yes, it's it's about a time in the near future in which um, people can extend their life for hundreds of years, and yet they still want to have children. But the Earth can only support so many people, and so there's a whole society of these sites who es essentially call the human population. And this is the story of a young girl who is called to be a scythe and about her training and all the implications of that. It was really fascinating. Do you remember the author's name? No, but I'll look it up for you. All right. And how about Dad? It seems like you uh, 
Would you say that The Expanse is your favorite uh, science fiction series in recent years? Uh, favorite series? Uh, I also very much like The Martian. I thought that, that, that was a terrific book. Yeah, that was really good. But you've read The Expanse. What are you, are you reading it for a second time now or? Yeah, yeah. So, um, um, it's, I think there are eight books now. And, uh, I went back and, and, uh, started from the beginning, uh, when the eighth one came out. And, uh, so I, I think I've read, I've, at first I was not reading it, uh, necessarily in the proper order. But uh, this time I, I did. I, I read it in the proper order, and, and it makes a lot more sense when you do that. <laughs> so, uh, so why do you think that that's uh, that's one that you wanted to go back to? Well, it's 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 very realistic, you know, except for the drive. Uh, you know, the uh, the drive in, in this series uh, is essentially limitless. Uh, and the, uh, the limit on how fast you can go from one place to another is, uh, just, uh, given by how much acceleration, uh, a human can take. And, um, so, uh, I, I really find that, uh, it's, it's very sensible, very logical. Uh, until you get to the, you know, the stargates where, where they go to, uh, different, different solar systems. But, they they don't, uh, you know, as Kathy said, you, you don't have to explain that. You just have to postulate it. That it sort of makes sense. But uh, boy, you know, I find the characters very uh, empathetic, and uh, they develop, and and there's a lot of uh, believable uh, social political stuff going on between Mars and Earth and the uh, the asteroid belt. It's, it's just a terrific series. Yeah, and, so and the Martian is is very similar, right? It uh, you you have this this astronaut in a, a very uh, believable situation and and uh, using his brains to to. I think you said he had the science the shit out of it or something. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, because I, I feel like um, you know when you guys were growing up, science fiction was much more by scientists for scientists. And it sounds like you still kind of prefer that style of science fiction. Hard science, yeah. Yeah, hard science fiction. See, Mom, did you find the uh, the author? Oh, I didn't. I was trying not to type here. Is it somebody like Neil Shusterman? Uh, could be. I mean, actually, uh, John Joseph Adams said that he's great, I think. So uh that's interesting if Amanda recommended it. Yeah, Amanda's been reading um all of the award winner books and so she's really got a uh, um Oh, yeah, Neil Schusterman. All right, cool. So everyone check those out. Um all right, I think we've touched on pretty much everything on my notes here. Let me just make sure I didn't skip anything. I think that's good. So, um, yeah, do uh, do either of you have anything else you want to say about Geek's Guide to the Galaxy or science fiction or your son? <laughs> <laughs> well, we are extremely proud of you. 
uh, the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is is uh, is unique podcast in 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 I think in the mixture of uh, of of authors and uh, stories that and movies and TV series that that you uh, you cover. Um, I'm also grateful to your many listeners who help support the show and make it possible for you to have a life and a calling that you love. Yeah, so everyone, you can support the podcast over at patreon.com slash geeks. Make my parents proud. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, because I always, I mean, you know, when I was growing up, you know, I always wanted, you know, when I would watch TV, I always wanted there to be a show where they would interview science fiction authors and talk about science fiction movies and TV shows and then also talk to, you know, scientists and journalists and political thinkers about science fiction and about all the different ideas that are explored in science fiction. I was always very, very frustrated that, that there was never anything like that. And so, yeah, that's what I've tried to do with Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And I, I yeah, I, there's nothing else quite like it as far as I know. Um, so, yeah, hope everyone is enjoying it. And, uh, yeah, so I think that was a great conversation. I feel like I really know you guys now. <laughs> I think we'll uh, wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with John R. Curtley and Catherine Barr Curtley. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Dave. Thanks, Ken. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to John R. Curtley and Catherine Barr Curtley for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.